0: Holy God. Awesome. Fantastic. You're singing well this morning. It's good to hear the praises in the house. Praises in the house. Sounds very Christian, isn't it? You're singing well. Your voices sound good. That's what I want to let you know. Hey, you can be seated. And uh, we're now going to hear a word. I'm trying to cut out the Christianese. I was about to say, like, come around the word. What does that even mean? Are we all going to gather around in a circle, around a book? Pastor Chris is going to come and preach. So why don't you welcome him right now.
1: (laughs) Greetings in Jesus' name, my holy brethren. (laughs) (laughs) Or as my favourite goon character would say... Hello, everybody. (laughs) Anybody ever seen The Goons? Uh, Thank you, Justine. It wasn't totally wasted. (laughs) Awesome. You guys uh, can take your seats. Thank you very much. We're starting a new series this morning. Who's excited? The new series is on a book that most people have heard of but never actually opened. It's the book of Revelation. And it's one of those books that divides the Christian community right down the middle. You've got people who look at it and they read bits of it and they think, this is just too much for me. I don't understand a word of it. And you get other people who look at it and think, oh, look at all this symbolism. There's got to be a code in here somewhere. There's got to be a hidden meaning. And they delve into it and come to all sorts of intriguing and interesting conclusions about the end of the world. But Revelation is actually one of the most powerful books of the Bible. It actually has a huge amount of encouraging scripture in it and direction and guidance for the church. And so, I mean, having read it several times over the past couple of weeks and having looked at a couple of commentaries on it, the only thing that disappoints me is I've only got four weeks. (laughs) And so it's, it's actually going to be difficult to get... A picture of some of the deeper aspects of the book of Revelation But what I actually want to do is Give us all an overall view of how we can actually delve into this book And get something which actually impacts our lives right here, right now Because it was written for that purpose And it has some incredible stuff in it So what is the book of Revelation? Well, one thing I like about this book is it tells us Revelation Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, this is John, or oh, to Jesus rather, to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. The time is nigh, if you've seen old movies. So the term John uses here for revelation is a a Greek word which is pronounced apokalosus. Hopefully there are no people who are experts here. But as you can tell, even from my mangling of the Greek, it sounds very much like the word apocalypse that we use today. And there, is, there are lots of great movies out there that deal with this word apocalypse. There's apocalypse now, for those of you who remember the uh, 80s. Um, there's there's all these post-apocalyptic films. There's 2012 and there's uh, Earthquake and all of these things that... and uh, what's that, 28 Days Later, and all of these movies which which talk about life after something apocalyptic has happened. And it's really a misnomer. They've, they've got the term. Apocalypse means revelation. It's an unveiling of something. It's not the end of the world, although the book of Revelation talks about the end of the world. But the book of Revelation is part of what's called A genre of apocalyptic literature. And before we, and for those of you who who aren't keen on explanations, I apologize in advance. But before we delve into the book, I think we've got to understand how it was written and and what the what the imagery in it is actually intended to do. And so there's this thing called apocalyptic apocalyptic literature. You've got to get your lips apocalypse around it. Sorry, that that wasn't meant to be (laughs) Anyway, let's move on So let's have a look at what apocalyptic literature actually is It's not not history Like Exodus, Matthew, the book of Acts they, They all have history It's not wisdom literature like the book of Job And the book of Ecclesiastes It contains songs but it isn't a book of songs like Psalms And it's not an instructive letter like Romans or Colossians so, it's, it's, I mean, it's a fun word to drop at dinner parties. Yeah, I've studied the apocalypse, and one of two things happen. Either people gather around to find out what you know, or they avoid speaking to you for weeks and weeks on end, because <laughs> they're worried about what you might say. And so we need to look at what the key elements of apocalyptic literature are, because they're important to actually understand what's going to happen when we delve into this book. So there are, there are six main things that we've got to look for. Um, the first one is that it has a primary theme, that the whole book of Revelation has one theme when we look at it. And that theme, and we have to keep it in mind because it, it helps us dissect the images, colours and bizarre things that actually happen, and some of them are bizarre. And Revelation's primary theme is it's the hope that God will intervene to save his people and judge and destroy evil That is the primary theme The second thing we've got to note is it's not chronological You cannot read it from beginning to end and say well this starts here and ends there Um, One minute you can be talking about the first century The next minute you're fast forwarding to thousands of years into the future with the new heavens and the new earth which makes it very difficult, in fact nearly impossible, to create linear timelines from this style of literature. And when people attempt it, they tend to end up with egg on their face. After all, everybody so far who has predicted the end of the world has been wrong. (laughs) Not a good track record. Um, It's also highly symbolic. Symbolism reigns in apocalyptic writing. For instance, if we look in Revelation 19, we see Jesus riding on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. Not only would that be highly uncomfortable, um, it would actually make talking ultra difficult. (laughs) And even the white horse is symbolic because Jesus doesn't actually need a horse to get around on. So there's a lot of symbolism there and we, we need to work out what the symbolism is trying to tell us. The fourth thing it does, it references the end times, which is known by scholars as eschatology. End times, eschatology. It depends what mood you're in and what party you're at as to whether you you unleash end times or or you go with, let's talk eschatology. Um, Probably they're the more boring dinner parties, so don't go to those. Um, uh, This is probably why the books like Daniel and Revelation have fascinated so many people over the centuries because we all love a good speculation about the future. Uh, it's also dualistic. Every time you look in the book, you will find extreme contrasts. You've got God and the devil. You've got contrasting ages. There's the present evil age and the age to come. There's contrasting locations. Some of this is set in heaven. Some of it's set on earth. So you'll always find there are, there are huge contrasts in there. And the last thing is is it's prophetic. In the final sentence that I just read out, where, which is... Um, it, gone way long back. It, it says God blesses the one who listens, reads the words of this prophecy to the church and blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. And so there's this temptation to look at this and think that the prophecy we're talking about, because the primary meaning of prophecy in English is the foretelling or prediction of what is to come. And it's misleading when used in the New Testament. To be sure there is a future element this prophecy but it's primarily a word spoken into a present situation. So who's it for? Because it's all very well to write something but anybody who's an author knows that the first thing that a publisher is going to ask them is who are you aiming this book at? Are you writing children's literature? Are you writing science fiction, fantasy? Is this a biography? Who is your intended audience? And again, if we look in Revelation, it tells us who the intended audience is. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 it says, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood from us. So already you can see that he's getting He's just talking about Jesus here, but he's starting to use words which evoke uh, emotion and feeling about that. So we know John's intended audience are the members of seven churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. And the letter's primary urgency is not about the final events, which we read about in chapters 20 and 22, but actually in the near future, For both John and his readers. And so, what makes John a truly Christian prophet as opposed to all his Old Testament predecessors is that he clearly recognised in this current situation that the church and the state are on a collision course. And terrible things are going to happen, the church is going to suffer, but we know that Christ's triumph at the end will bring us into what we would call the real future. So from the beginning of the book, John uses this apocalyptic language that's intended to um, merge what is seen by him to what is spoken. That is, for him it was a seen testimony, it was a vision that he, he, he saw, and then he had to turn this into writing to actually send it out to these churches. So there's a bit of a, a translation that's gone on, um, and there's a, there's a blessing in this. Notice he says in, in Revelation 1-3, God blesses the one who reads the word of this prophecy to the church and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. So don't forget, this is a culture where only about 15% of people can read and write. So even though John's written this letter, somebody has to get up at church and read the letter out to these people. So blessed is the person who gets up and reads the the letter, And it says, blessed are the people who listen to it and do what it says. Does this sound familiar? Be doers and not just hearers of the word. Yeah. So this is, this, is, this is John's exhortation, not to just listen to what is said, but there's actually action that these people can take uh, to actually do something. And the time is near. It really implies an urgency about all this. It's not, look, read this stuff, mull over it, sort of think about it, get a committee together. Decide what you're going to do. It's sort of like, you know, things are happening. You need to get this stuff under your belt. Start taking action now because things are going to happen really, really quickly. And the persecutions they were about to experience were already starting to happen. And the great thing about this is we know that it started to happen because it's it's history for us. We know what happened in the second and third century uh, of the Christian church and the persecution that actually went on with all of that. So before we go any further, let's actually take a look at what the first five or so chapters of the book of Revelation look like and how they unfold. And we're going to do this with the help of our friends from the Bible Project. So let's have a look at that. The
2: book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the Gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a Messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apocalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers, from the Hebrew Scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypses recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events, so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was past, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome, or literally, conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But, it turns out, no one is able to open the scroll. Until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat, it was his enthronement, it was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne. And together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer. And the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion.
1: Right. And it goes on. This explanation only covers about 25% of the book, uh, but we will continue on in the following weeks to discover what else lies in Revelation. Now, who found that quite edifying? It's quite a good and clear explanation of what's starting to unfold in the, in the, in the book of Revelation. In fact, I think they do it so well, it, it stirs an excitement in you. It's like, it, who wants me to play the next five minutes? <laughs> next week, you have to wait. But before we, before we delve deeper into the book, we actually need to address this this uh, important issue, I think, of why did John send this letter to its chosen recipients, apart from the obvious that Jesus told him to? Um, uh, Because we know know exactly who they are. In Revelations 1.11, it says, Write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the city of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there's these... These churches, we know that John is sending this letter to, um, and if, if you actually read the letters, and hopefully um, you, you were asked last, last week if, if you'd uh, actually start reading the book of Revelation, because it's a good idea to, to get a bit of background into this, um, you'll know that the, the seven letters all take much the same form. Uh, in fact, let's, let's read the one to the, the church's Ephesus, because it's pretty much the same for all of them. Revelation two verse one says, "Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patience' endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. Sounds good, doesn't it? then he says, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favour. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone who with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who's victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life. In the paradise of God. And most of the letters to the other churches, with a few exceptions, say some good things and some bad things. And I think it's very easy for us to read these things, and, and, and this has been done throughout history, and look at what's been said to these churches and take it as a bit of a put down. Because it's like John saying, You guys are just not good enough. Um, this, this is what's wrong with you and now I'm going to tell you a story of what's going to happen to you if you don't repent. Because there's lots of stories, I mean it's a bit, bit like saying that you guys are all wishy-washy Christians, you're a bunch of lukewarm compromisers and you with everybody else with 666 tattooed onto their forehead is going to go into the pit of fire with the dragon and the beast. And we're thinking, who the heck are the dragon and the beast? Um, and so it, it sounds very condemning, but we need we need to take a step back. What's what's the primary theme of the book of Revelation? It's the unveiling of the ultimate hope that we have in Jesus, that justice and truth will prevail in the end. So let's let's look at these look at this slightly differently. John's just had a vision about the fact that things are going to get worse, bad. Really really bad for these churches. And he wants to prepare them for what they're going to face and motivate them to push through it. And so he does that in three ways. He tells them what they need to change. He shows them the rewards of perseverance. And he shows them the fate of their enemies. Now, it's a bit like this. I'm going to get off that stage because it's creaking like crazy. I feel old just walking around. Imagine, I'm praying this week and God gives me a vision. And he says, Chris, sometime in the next six months... Everybody in your church is going to be forced by a despotic government to run a marathon. 42 kilometres. And you sort of think, ooh, okay. <laughs> I can see some people in my church saying, yes, bring it on. Other people saying, uh, okay, I might be able to do that. And other people saying, hey, no way, Jose. Sorry, Jose. Um, <laughs> He's in kids' church, he won't, he won't know. Um, but, was <laughs> and okay, so and this despotic government is going to say if you don't finish the marathon, you're going to die. If you cheat and take a shortcut, you're going to die. If you get somebody else to carry you, we're going to kill you. If you take performance-enhancing drugs, we're going to kill you. And so I've got this vision and I've got to bring it to the church. And so, The first thing, and God shows me that for the people who complete the marathon, suddenly they are actually going to supplant the despotic government and become the power in the land, and that all of our enemies are going to suffer the same fate that we were going to suffer under their hands. So you think, well, okay. So if we finish the race, everything works out really well. And So I come to the church, and what's the first thing I'm actually going to tell you people? We've got to get fit. I'm not going to say, look, there's a race that if we finish we're going to be really good because that's great, but who knows that that's not the first motivation people need. We actually need to know, look, guys, I've found out that sometime in the next six months we're going to have to run a marathon and our lives are on the line. So what can we change in our lives to make that happen? I mean, I pulled out my my fitness app the other day and, and I looked at it and it says, for your age, I hate it when it says that, Your fitness is very good. And I thought, well, okay, I feel really good about that. And down the bottom it says, if you ran a marathon, your time would be five hours. (laughs) I'm thinking, that's a long time. It's assuming that, A, I can run for five hours. (laughs) Um, And I'm thinking, okay, something would need to change in my life for me to be able to run and complete that marathon. And so we, we, we would need to band together and we would need to admit that We're not fit, we're not eating right, we're not exercising right. Something's going to have to change. Let's change something in our lives so that we're actually going to be able to run this marathon. But who knows that after the first 5K run, you're sort of thinking, stuff this for a joke, this is getting, I don't want to do this, this. So you need another motivation. So what you say is, look, the other thing that God showed me was if we can complete this race, we can change the world. We can imagine, just going through a little bit of pain here is going to change the face of the globe because when we finish, we are going to be put in positions of power, we're going to have responsibility, we're going to be able to change people's lives for the better. And by the way, all the people who are making life tough for us now are are, are going to suffer. We don't like to use negative um, motivation too much, but this is something to keep us going. We know what we have to do, but we've got to keep our eye on the fact that there's a reward involved and this is what this is John's motivation he hasn't come to tell the churches off he's come because he's seen that they are going to go through some really tough times and they are actually going to be persecuted severely for it and so he says if you if you guys are going to get through this if you guys aren't going to lose your faith and and turn to compromise because compromise is going to lead to death not from the Romans necessarily but you're going to lose your faith and the reward at the end is not going to be yours you're going to have to change some things Not because you're naughty people, but because I want to see you fit and strong and able to face what persecution is coming. There's going to be a tribulation, and you're going to get a choice. You can either opt out and compromise, or you can stand firm in faith and see a reward at the end of what you're doing. And so that's the impact that John is trying to get into these churches in first century Asia, or Asia Minor. Asia Minor. And so, this impact that they're getting should be no less today. Because, I mean, you look on, at what he's talking about, the, the, the persecution. I mean, you can stand here and think, well, none of that happens today. Christians aren't being persecuted. Our values aren't being eroded. And nobody's against us. That, that sort of stuff shouldn't worry us. But that's not true, is it? We are facing, what you could say, very similar conditions that our, our belief systems are being eroded. We are being called to make choices and compromises to fit in with the world around us. And we actually have a choice. We can stand firm on our faith and we can compromise. So this, even this, this, this first five chapters of the book of Revelation is, is something which impinges on our lives as modern-day Christians. We live in a broken world, which Paul... And he back then even calls this present evil age in Galatians chapter one. Injustice abounds, evil is apparent and people need confidence and hope just to survive the rigours of daily life. And so we all need to know there's a God in heaven who will not only bring justice to bear on all evil but will reward his people for their righteousness and perseverance in Christ. But who knows, you don't train for marathons by running marathons. You start small. You actually start training a couple of Ks and 5 Ks. And I think most marathon runners don't run more than 10 Ks for most of their training regimes. And so I want to encourage us this morning. The fight that we are in, the fight that John is talking to his first century compatriots about, is not something that requires a huge spiritual upswelling that we have to come together and put in huge effort and, and a massive change in our circumstances, it actually just requires small changes. Constant changes. Persistent changes. Sometimes only slight changes. It's a little less cheese and bickies. A little less red wine. Not much, but a little less would help. Perhaps a little bit more Exercise a little more regularly. And when it comes to our our spiritual health, because it it comes back to all all the simple things, we need to actually be Christians who pray. We need to be Christians who read and understand and do what the Word of God tells us. We need to have discipline in our life, even in the small things, because who knows that if you're going to run a marathon, you need to be fit before the marathon. If we're going to face persecution, we need to be ready before the persecution comes. So we need to get ready to be fit. If we want to to get the, the, the rewards that are promised in the book of Revelation, and we'll look into these more deeply later, we've actually got to start getting spiritually fit. Not by making a huge effort, not by turning our lives upside down, but by looking at the things that we need to change and slowly but surely starting to affect change in those lives. Who, wa- who wants to get fit spiritually? Who wants to get fit physically? <laughs> well, you need to speak to your personal trainer about that because um, I'm possibly not the, the right person to speak. But we, we need to start taking a stand. We need, we, need, we need to stand up. Come on, let's stand. We need to start by pinpointing just one thing. You know, John looked at these churches and he pinpointed areas where they were doing really well. Cuz so I think it's important to understand we're not all a total failure. When we look at our lives it, he says here not everything is wrong that we do. In fact, some of the churches he says you guys are brilliant in most things, but there's just one little thing you need to work on. And so I think we need to start there. There's always a start, um, and we need to think, Why, what is it? Is it something, and I don't know about you, but I don't always move on things particularly quickly, and so often I'll find that there's this thing that's been niggling at me for, for weeks. You know, I should be doing this more. Perhaps I should organise this in my life. Perhaps, perhaps I need to get around to doing that. And it goes on for months until one day I sort of think, I haven't done anything about this, but I've been talking about it for a while. Let's actually do it. And so this is the time when if there's something going around in your head and your heart or your mind saying, no, I need to change this. Yeah. Or if, or if you know, you've, you've got a partner or a significant person in your life who's been telling you that and you've been resisting because they've been telling you that. Um, I'm speaking to the men. In the house, <laughs> perhaps it's time then, instead of listening to what other people say, inspect your own heart and say, "Okay, I'm going to do that because I believe that that needs changing in my life." So we need to, we need to get fit. I just, I want to pray. If that's you, in a moment. I'm going to ask you to come out the front because I believe that if we're going to make that decision, if we're going to start getting fit spiritually, if we're going to move on things we haven't started before or if we're going to tweak things that we're already on the path to, because sometimes you're on the road, you're getting there, but you get to that point where you think, oh, I'm not sure where to take it next, what the next step is or how or it's become dry and you want to make it, uh, revive it again. Then I believe that we need a touch of God to actually do that. But before I pray for those people, that the most important thing, John says that the book of Revelation is all about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as we delve further into it, we'll see that the emphasis in the book of Revelation is actually on the importance of Jesus in heaven and how Jesus actually rises to be the prime figure in the story that goes on in heaven because The heavens and the earth realise that the change in what has happened is actually because of Jesus' death and resurrection. There is no other thing that that has changed on this earth which has had so much of an impact in our relationship with God than the fact that Jesus died and was resurrected. And the importance of knowing that is paramount through this book of Revelation. And so the first thing we have to do is actually make sure that we've accepted the Lamb of God The sacrifice that Jesus made as part of our life. We have to be able to say, I am a a follower of Jesus Christ. I have taken him as my Lord and my Saviour. And I am following him. So before we we pray for the changes that we're going to make, we actually have to be absolutely sure we've made that one vital change that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Saviour. So I'm going to ask if everybody can just close their eyes for a moment. And if you're here and you've never prayed a prayer to say, look, Jesus, I I invite you into my heart. I'm becoming right now one of your followers. You are my Lord, my Saviour, or something to that effect. Then I want to invite you to do that in just a moment. And if you've done that before, but you realise that you haven't stayed true to that prayer, I'd love to give you an opportunity to rededicate your life to following Jesus. And we do that by just repeating that prayer again, believing in our heart that as we speak those words, Jesus comes in and starts us on a new path. So while every head's bowed, every eye closed, if you're here this morning, you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, or you know you need to do that again this morning, can you just raise your hand high so that I can see it? And I'd love to pray that prayer with you. Anyone at all here this morning? Awesome. Church, open your eyes. If you're, if you're one of those people who said, I'm going I'm to get fit. I'm, I'm going to start changing my life right now. Can you just come out the front here quickly? I just want to pray for you all. I believe that there's a, there's a presence of God in this place that's going to set a spark into people's spirits to set them on a new path, to give them fresh life, fresh revelation, fresh fire in their spirits. mighty God just lift your hands out in front of you or if you're in the congregation lift your hands out towards these people here Lord I pray for a fresh touch of your Holy Spirit On these lives. I thank you that they are preparing themselves for the fight ahead. I thank you, Lord, that there is a fitness that is going to come into their spirit because they have opened it to you to enable you to guide their lives. Lord, we pray for new beginnings, new revelation, Holy Spirit form. Holy Spirit, touch them. Touch them. Fresh fire, fresh fire, fill. Holy God, fresh revelation, new life, new fire. fire of him. Pour down your spirit. Awesome. The great thing we've got to do now is start training It's always the exciting bit Whatever you've purposed in your heart Whether you need to do it this afternoon Or whether you're starting it tomorrow morning You need to do something physical when you go back to your seats If it's something that is a, is a um, habit-based thing Put it in your diary Tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock I start prayer Or if you meet 8 o'clock you'll do fine I'm not an early morning person Um, but put it there it doesn't matter you don't have to follow anybody else's routine but you actually have to put something there I'm going to start doing this or I'm going to go to the shops and change your shopping list no more Noir, except on Fridays hey it's, it's, it's okay to do it gently Awesome, you guys can be seated. Thank you very much, Brendan.
0: Pastor Chris, why don't you thank Pastor Chris for bringing the word. It's encouraging, isn't it? You train for a marathon by starting with something small. And I think for me, my my jam is like if I'm going to get fit and exercise, I'll fall into the trap of this. I'll be like, oh, you know what? I need to get fit. Okay, so here's what I need to do to be able to start to do that. I'm going to buy some new shoes and then I need all the gear. Got to get the pants, the right pants. I couldn't go with my pants. Get a new top and then I got to organize everything. But I think it's encouraging to hear, start with what you have now, right? Um, don't, Don't worry about getting everything together to be able to start. Just start.